Hi, I'm Marcus. I've been working in the area of ageing and longevity for over 25 years, both here in Australia and right across the world. And I want us to develop new thinking on getting older. Booming the podcast is about unlocking the mysteries of getting older in today's society. It's about understanding the opportunity we have to embrace our new longevity and overcome the challenges that we'll encounter along the way. When you're at your lowest point, you don't for a moment imagine you're ever going to be able to bounce back. But a year later, you can. So if you're resilient years and years where you're not resilient, it's a much better way of looking at it than thinking that some people are bulletproof. Very few people are bulletproof. Dr Norman Swan is arguably Australia's most well-known doctor. Having been a guiding and award-winning public voice throughout the COVID pandemic, he remains a highly respected commentator on television and radio on all things relating to health. That they'd rather die of bowel cancer <laughs> or have a mutilating operation than put yep. poo on a piece of paper and send it off to the lab. You know, explain that. He's also a renowned author with his latest book, So You Want to Live Younger, Longer, Hot Off the Press. Then you cross a threshold, which is usually at a key age, probably around about 40. What I do to be able to party till 3am. In this episode, Dr Swan discusses all things about living longer, better. He provides great advice on what we need to know about our family history and genetics and what sort of health checks we should be seeking from our GP. A Scotsman and an Aussie, it is a pleasure to welcome Dr Norman Swan. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Norman, uh, it's clear from reading your book that family played a very important part in your upbringing. Do you reflect often about those early times of your life in, in your work now? Um, I do. Um, I mean, one thing that uh, growing up in Scotland teaches you is humility. And uh, humility, well, it's not sort of, it's not sort of, ex it's not explicit in Australian culture. It's expected of you. Um, you're not supposed to big note yourself, show off, um, tell it the story that's bigger than it is. And I recognize very, that very quickly in Australia. Mm. And um, so I think the humility I learned in Scotland has, has stood me in good stead in, in Australia. So let's talk about that professional journey from being a, a young lad in Scotland to becoming Australia's most famous doctor. Uh, and I believe you did very much hold that passion for, for acting and uh, I think considered pursuing that. But how did you go from that youth in Scotland to being, as I said, one of our most, if not the most renowned doctor here in Australia? You're right. As an adolescent, I wanted to be an actor. And I used to go to the theatre a lot. Um, I often went to the theatre by myself. It was a very good repertory theatre in Glasgow called the Glasgow Citizens Theatre. And so I grew up with that. And I was going to go to drama school, but chickened out of drama school, reckoning it was a much safer option doing medicine. But so I did medicine, but I did a lot of acting and directing at university. And after I graduated, a lot of the feeling that I wanted to do something else came back. It wasn't that I didn't like medicine. I enjoyed it. I really liked it, actually. But this frustration came back, and I, I did an audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London and failed miserably at it. And soon after that, I decided I, was, I, needed, I needed a break from Britain. And so I got a good job at the then Children's Hospital in Sydney, which was near Sydney University, called Royal Alexandra Hospital for Children. It was a really good job for a year and to advance my training. And then the feeling all came back. And I realized that when I arrived in Australia, it truly was the land of opportunity. And I think a lot of Australians, when they go to Britain, feel it's a land, Britain's a land of opportunity. Mm. And I think it's simply you get away from your home environment and you're prepared to take risks. Yeah. And so 
I did. I went off and did other stuff, and I started writing. I, I wrote for um, the national, the then National Times. Got a few things published, but realized that the world wasn't waiting for me, and I was about to go back to full time pediatrics. And I opened the newspaper in those days when you could open a newspaper, and in those days when there were classified ads in newspapers, um, very old fashioned. And there was an ad for a producer to make science and medical programs on national radio, the ABC. And I'd never articulated this before, before, but I, I suddenly recognized that was the job for me. Mm. That was the ideal job. I'd been listening to radio for all my childhood. In fact, my parents used to tell me to shut down the noise because um, they didn't like the noise of talk radio. Right. But I used to listen to the Radio 4 in Britain. And when I came to Australia, I searched for something equivalent and found it at the ABC. So I didn't need to swat up. I'd been listening to ABC mm. radio since I arrived in Australia. And I spent a week writing the application and to my amazement and to the amazement of anybody who knows me or knew me at that time, I got the, I got the job. And that's where I've been ever since. And it's just... I'm I'm really, really lucky and have been lucky in life that I've landed on a job, which isn't really a job. Um, it's just I'm doing in a radio sense, I suppose, what Jonathan Miller does. I, I can choose. The ABC gives you a lot of freedom mm. to choose what you want to do. There are opportunities within the organization, you know, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. With those different roles, did you ever um, consider the opportunity of a, a sideways move onto a, an acting role on one of the ABC's productions to um, to feel that passion from your earlier years? I, I used to, when the, in the days when the ABC did its own drama, I used to be the kind of in-house medical consultant where they'd consult me on things. And occasionally I would get um, a walk-on part, not usually non-speaking, uh, the most infamous of which was, it was a, it was a beautiful, um, I think it was Alex Buzo who wrote the script. It was a beautiful script. And it was set in the just after World War Two, and it required at one point uh, the doctor taking blood from um, the, the, the arrivals. And they said, "Well, would you do that for us on camera?" I said, "Sure." And I said, "But to be authentic, it's got to be a glass syringe because there's no plastic syringes in those days." So, so they 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 found a glass syringe with needles, and then I said, "Well, who's going to be the?" Because actors' equity did not allow actors to actually have <laughs> stuff like that. So the, the makeup artist um, loved needles for some reason. And she would jump forward saying, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> so this was, done, this was done in a studio. In a studio environment, doing a drama, you've got all these big cameras. And, of course, everybody was really interested because this was something different for a Absolutely. drama. And the camera's focusing on in as I put the needle in to take the blood, and I missed the vein. <laughs> oh, oh, no. So you're talking about performance anxiety. This is like <laughs> the worst performance anxiety. And that's right. I was feeling around trying to get the needle in the vein, and the arm felt heavy in my hand. I thought, what's going on here? And she'd fainted. Oh. standing up because we were standing it was it was actually they actually did i just did standing up because that was better for the camera angle and i realized she fainted and i was i was holding her up with the needle in her arm and so i had to sort of descend slowly with her to the ground with the needle in the, in the arm and the cameraman thought that this was actually the way it was planned so he actually comes down with us through the shot and then the director shouts, cut, can we do this again? Oh, God <laughs> almighty. Oh, that's a wonderful story. That could have been the end of your medical and acting career in, in one go. 
Well, that was certainly the end of my acting career. <laughs> Norman, you, you started in, in paediatrics in the early part of your medical career. When did you develop the deep interest in our ageing journey? And obviously, we'll, we'll come to your book in just a moment. Well, really, since um, I, I started broadcasting, because the science of ageing was very primitive, really, till quite recently. Most of the studies of aging were not the studies of aging at all. There were studies of diseases of aging, like heart disease and cancer and dementia and so on, rather than aging itself. So I've always had a fascination about what happens inside the cells of your body as you age. And there's been a lot of speculation for that. I've covered it a lot during the years. What are the influences on, on that? And I've always had an interest in surprising influences on your health and well-being that you might not think. So we tend to think proximally, in other words, things that are close to our health and well-being. So you think about smoking and cholesterol, blood pressure, that sort of thing. Rather that, than what is, what is upstream of those that makes us a smoker, that raises our cholesterol, that raises our blood pressure. And there are bigger things that happen in society. And if all you do is fix up your smoking, you may not get as far as you think in terms of anti-aging, slowing down aging and what have you, because life's more complicated than that. So I've always been interested in that. I think, And we tend to resist the notion that our brain is so powerful because we get really angry at doctors who say, how are you feeling? Um, you're, you're not looking that happy. And then we say, oh, look, the bugger's saying that my symptoms are all in my head which is actually not what the doctor is saying, but the do doctors know intuitively, even though they're not necessarily being well-trained in this, that if your mental health is poor, you're under stress and so on, your physical symptoms are going to get worse because that's what happens. Your mind and your body are one. It's not all in your head. It's just that you're making things, you're not, you're not making things worse. Your situation is making things worse. And in fact, one of the conditions that's, that, that's typical of that is chronic pain. So people might have, low back pain, headaches, and so on, that just won't go away. And whatever started in the first place is long gone. You might have pulled a muscle in your back, but you're left with the pain. Now, the pain is real, um, and but something abnormal has happened in the brain to connect the, brain, the, the pain circuits together, and you're left with pain. Now, what happens is that the mushroom effects of that pain on your brain and your mental health and so on make the pain worse. And if you can get rid of the mushroom effects, you won't cure the pain, but it'll, yep. you'll be able to manage it much better as, yep. as one example. But when it comes to aging, if you feel out of control of your life, feel that others are running your life or you don't have enough money to do what you want to do and you're under pressure, that speeds up aging. And it might sound weird to say so, but it's not that weird. It's easy to understand when you understand that your brain runs everything. Yep. And when you're under chronic stress, out of control, your brain sends pro-aging messages to the rest of the body rather than anti-aging messages. Congratulations on your latest book, So You Want to Live Younger, Longer. In the book, you talk about things like patterns, for instance. What are some of the key things that we should be wanting to know about our family and its history, given how genetics have evolved or our knowledge of genetics has evolved? So there's two, thing, two main things here. One is that people have assumed that to live to a ripe old age, you need to be in a family that's lived to a ripe old age. Now, that used to be true, still true to some, still true. It's nice to have, live in a family that clearly sure. is just destined to live to a ripe old age. It turns out, though, that longevity genes really only kick in to a significant extent at the extreme of old age. 
So the extreme of old age used to be getting into your 90s, maybe to 100. And that was a genetic phenomenon. But now people are getting to their 90s and 100 without, the, without those longevity genes because they've lived well. Um, there, there are all sorts of other things they might be doing which we can talk about. And then longevity genes probably today kick in maybe into your 100s, 105 or 110. Now, there's not many people of those around, but there's also equally not many extreme longevity genes in our population. So um, it gets to those extremes. Um, so that's the first thing is that you can re reach... And um, a, um, a, a long life in good shape without necessarily having the genes to the, to predict to predict that. Yes. So, but the second, the, the flip side of that is that you might have genes which shorten your life or could shorten your life if you don't know you've got them. Mm -hmm. So, what I talk about in the book is stuff you should do because wouldn't it be a tragedy if you didn't get to ninety or a hundred? because there was something else you should have done and you could have done that came to mug you along the way. Yep. Because a lot of people these days, you should get into your 90s, but the stuff that can get in the way. So one of the things, and it goes to your question, one of the things that you should do, and I, and I say to people, it's probably, probably things you should do in your 20s and 30s when your family's still alive and has a memory around you, is what did people die of in your family? And at what age? And what, do they, what, what ages do they first get diagnosed with disease? And if you find that out, that will save your life. It will prolong your life because you can be watched and monitored. You might need to go at a very early age. You might need to go on a cholesterol medication to get your cholesterol down. But it will stop you having a heart attack when you're 50 like Uncle George or stop you developing cancer at 55 like Auntie Mary so that you can actually live a normal lifespan. You mentioned in the book about a, a personality associated with long life and that it's not a cause of long life, but, but there's a link. Can you tell us about this personality associated to long life? These are studies of people who've reached 100 centenarian studies. And the one I'm thinking of in particular is called the New England Centenarian Study in New England in the United States. So Boston, uh, Massachusetts and so on. Right. And what they find with centenarians is that they, they haven't necessarily had an easy life. They might be Holocaust survivors. They might have had a lot of adversity. Um, they've had a lot of misfortune in their life, but they've still got to 100. And one of the features of them, and it's not everybody, but it's a, it's a, t a trend to this sort of feature, is yes. that they get over it. In other words, if they get angry, they get over it. If they get frustrated, they get over it. If they've had a bad patch in their life, they get over it. They don't fester. And um, on that basis, you and I, I've got only about 15 minutes of life left in this interview because <laughs> I don't get over it. I'm a festerer. <laughs> so that's, that's something more than resilience, the way you articulated that, that it's this ability to endure but then also move on. Resilience is, is, is subtly different. I don't like the word resilience. Um, because it implies that there are resilient people in this world who can bounce back easily after adversity. And so what I was talking about is getting over it. They're not festering. It's not necessarily the bounce back. They probably are resilient, but it assumes, the word resilient assumes that there are resilient people in this world and people who are losers, you know, weak, weak-willed, weak, yep. and they can't bounce back. Mm. And that's not the way the world works. The way the world works is, you know, and armies around the world have tried to refine the way they recruit people, particularly for the special forces, 
to find resilient, you know, naturally resilient people who are not going to get post-traumatic stress disorder when they've been in battle. Right. And they've failed. Special forces get PTSD. They might not get it quite as much as other forces, but they get it's just we are we have periods in our life when we're resilient, something bad happens, we bounce back, and we have periods in our lives when you just feel I'm out of puff here, I cannot bounce back. And it's you know, and the times when you can't is when there's multiple things going there are multiple things going on. You've got um if somebody's died, you've lost your job, your kids are off the rails, um, that sort of thing. Multiple things in a in a year, and at the end of that year, you've just lost it. You, you, there's no way you can take another thing going wrong. Mm. But a year later, when things are sorted out, and, you, and you, you don't for a moment, when you're at your lowest point, you don't for a moment imagine you're ever going to be able to bounce back. But a year later, you can. So if you're resilient years, and res- years where you're not resilient, it's a much better way of looking at it than thinking that, some people are bulletproof. Very few people are bulletproof. You talk about the concept of an ideal younger age that we develop as we get older, as opposed to when we are younger and we and we look at the next uh, phase of being older. What do you think we get wrong as we look forward in terms of our aging and, and these different phases of life? I don't think it's very productive to think of what we get wrong. But I, 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 I think that people... One, it goes back to what I said a moment ago. So one of the things that we get wrong is that we start thinking about health and longevity when we're 50 years old. And we should start thinking about it when we're in our 20s and 30s. And if you're a parent of a 20 or 30-year-old, you know, they should just go once a decade to see the GP and check their blood pressure and cholesterol um, and just understand what's going on. Now, kids these days are much more health-conscious uh, than the older generation were at that age. You know, they're not smoking as much, nearly as much. They're not using drugs nearly as much. Not drinking as much alcohol. They're a pretty health conscious group of people. So you've got to start early thinking about that. It doesn't mean to say you go to the doctor every year. There's no value really in that unless you've got a chronic illness. But just understand what your general health profile is. Just once every so often it gets more common. You know, you want to, if you start getting a diagnosis of problems, then you've got to see your doctor more commonly than that. So that, I think that's where we, we, we tend to start too late. For example, this week, as we're speaking on my radio show on Radio National, I covers a, a, a conundrum, which is stroke, rates of stroke are dropping in the over 55-year-olds, which is fantastic news. So the risk of having a stroke is going down. And it's going up in younger people. And why is it... Why is this happening? One reason is probably the focus on the over 50s in terms of your health and well-being and not in younger people who may have risk factors right. that you're not recognizing that you could have picked up early. Yep. The other reason, by the way, is this brain-mind connection that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. is that there may well be an element of chronic stress uh, which is causing stroke in younger people. Because interestingly... Um, it's more affluent, better educated younger people who are getting strokes, not necessarily the poor, which is normal. It's normally the poor and disadvantaged who have high risk of strokes. But in this case, it's actually people that you would not expect to get it. So there's more complex things. There are more complex things going on. So I think that's that's our huge thing is, is not having a focus on the young as much as we should. Mm. And when you're young, just... Um, not obsessing on it, but being aware and just touching base with yourself. Yeah. 
The other thing is that as you get older, we look for simple solutions. You know, my throwaway line is about the goji berries, you know, the, the yes. but there are no simple solutions. There are no simple solutions for aging. There might be one day, and I go through what the potential simple solutions are, almost like a consumer checklist, so that you understand what's available. Many of these things are not ripoffs. They actually should work. But for some reason, because in animals, they extend the life of those animals in good health, which is what we all want. But for some reason in humans, they don't work. And in the book, I cover why they don't work. But they may work one day, but not quite yet. Um, so there's this tantalizing prospect that you might be able to take something. But we tend, we tend to think it's just one thing that gets us to... Um, yeah. So what we're we talking about here, we're talking about having a younger chassis than the number of years mm-hmm. that the car has been on the road. Yes. And, and, and there are multiple factors that get you to that point. Um, and just thinking that one thing's going to solve it is not going to cut it. And this, uh, I think, segues into your point in the book and, and one which I really concur with around the biological age versus the chronological age. And I think what you're alluding to then was the ability or potential we have to influence our biological age. Obviously, we can't do anything about the chronological age, but we can have this positive impact on our biological age. Can you explain some of your thinking around that biological age versus the chronological? So yeah, when you actually look at people who are biologically younger, they're their heart and lungs are exchanging oxygen and beating um, at a, with an efficiency that's typical of a younger person. Um, when you look at the, your blood pressures low, you're, you tend not to have smoked, or if you have smoked, you've stopped, because smoking is very pro-aging. You're, if you've had high blood pressure, it's treated, and that, that slows down aging. And then you can look at how much... Um, oxidative stress you're under. So we do a deal with the devil. We have to breathe oxygen to survive. But when you breathe in oxygen, oxygen can be quite toxic in your body as well. And um, so in the general environment, if you've got bare iron, the iron will rust in the atmosphere, and that's oxygen being toxic to iron and causing rust. It's called oxidation. That happens inside your body as well. So you can measure how much oxidative stress you're under. It's, it's, it's more of an experimental technique than something you can send off to the pathologist. Sure. But you can test that. There's how fired up your immune system is. So people who are older than their chronological age have tend to have an immune system that's overactive, that's fired up, and that inflammation and it causes inflammation, and that inflammation actually ages your tissues. Uh, if you look young on the outside, you're probably young on the inside. And that's almost certainly the effect of sunlight. So sunlight doesn't just age your skin. It actually adversely affects the tissues under it and the bloodstream under it and can stimulate a pro-aging process in your body itself, not just on your skin. So the, these are the multiple things that you're talking about. So young elastic blood vessels, a heart that's... You know, and lungs that perform well, um, a brain that's not aging fast so that you're, you're, you're mentally acute. Those are the features. There's not just one. There's multiple features of being biologically young. And I talk about BAG in the book, which is the brain age gap. Yep. So that's the biological gap between chronological age and the age of your brain. 
And by and large, what ages the rest of your body, ages your brain too, except that your brain is the first port of call for the environment. And so if you are lonely, um, depressed or anxious or stressed, that actually speeds up brain aging. And that then speeds up aging of the rest of your body. We tend to think of things affecting our heart, but in fact, it may, may well have affected our brain before our heart. So moving from that to the felt age, which is more around how we feel, so psychologically and uh, mentally, emotionally, versus how we may look physically, how can we better understand this notion of the felt age? And again, how does that then relate to what you were just explaining in regards to the biological age? This is fascinating. So if you, if you look at, say, adolescents, 12, 13-year-olds, they want to be like the 19-year-olds they see. Yeah. And if you look at 19-year-olds, they want to be like the cool 20-year-olds. The 20-year-olds want to be well, probably a little bit, still a little bit older. Then you cross a threshold, <laughs> which is usually at a key age, probably around about 40, when you think, that oh, sounds about God, right. <laughs> what, I'd give, what I'd give to be able to party till 3 a.m. and then wake up at 6 and go to work and mm. perform really well. Or, or at 40, you think, well, I, it's a nice idea being in my 20s again, but I couldn't stand being on a dating <laughs> game again. But, but you, do, you do start to look back and wish in some shape or form you were younger. Mm. And then you reach an equipoise later in life where you're happy in your own skin. And paradoxically, people do get happier as they get older and don't look back and wish they were younger. It's the worst thing that you can think of. Like, Why would I want to be 30 again? I mean, really, all those issues and I have to have young kids and everything yeah. else. And beyond that, I can make my choices and I've got money in my pocket. If you're lucky enough to have money in your pocket to go traveling and what have you. So you, you reach that equipoise. And um, it'd probably nicer if we reached that equipoise uh, sooner in life, but it is what it is. The issue is there's nothing wrong with wanting to actually stay young because you do not want to get to your 90s where your muscles don't work, you're frail, you can't walk to the shops, mm. you can't do stuff, your brain's starting to go and you're, you're miserable and dependent on others. Nobody wants to do that. Yeah. And therefore, you've, you've got to set yourself a few challenges to get to your 90s mm. in good shape. Unless you've got fantastic genes, you're not going to be able to do it to yourself. You also talk in the book about sleep. There's so much of a focus on having to have eight hours sleep a night. And if we don't have that eight hours sleep, there's all sorts of ramifications. Can you explain your take on our sleep requirements? We tend to get anxious about the wrong things with sleep. Um, so I thought I understood the sleep literature when I wrote the book. Um, but in fact, when I delve down, there are lots of fundamental things we don't we misunderstand about the sleep story. And I think some sleep specialists misunderstand it too, with all due respect. Right. When you look at sleep therapy, the best sleep therapy that's available, it doesn't turn you from a six-hour-a-night sleeper to an eight-hour-a-night sleeper. It turns out the duration is not nearly as important as sleep quality. So when you get really good sleep therapy, yep. you wake up in the morning refreshed, you've had a good night's sleep. It may still be only six hours, mm. but it's been a really good six hours. And it looks as though it's sleep quality that counts rather than sleep duration, right. because it's quite hard to change how, how much you sleep. Norman, health checks, regular health checks, you alluded to this earlier in terms of the value of those, uh, even at a younger age, understanding their purpose and 
how that evolves, obviously, as we as we do grow older. Can you just give us some further insight around the purpose of our regular health checks, what we should be seeking from them, what we should be looking for from our GPs or, or uh, health practitioners we go to for these assessments? Step one for a healthy life is have a GP that you know and like, who looks after you well, that you can see on a, on a, you know, when you need to see them. Unless you've got a chronic disease like diabetes or heart disease, dementia or something like that, there is pretty much no value in the annual checkup. So I cover this in the book. Really, you, know, you think of all the corporations that spend a fortune on their executive health checks. Yep. But there is a value in your 20s, just once, knowing what your blood pressure and cholesterol is. Mm-hmm. And again, in your 30s, knowing what your blood pressure and cholesterol is. If you've got any symptoms you've never had before, a new headache or you've got bleeding or bruising, go and see your doctor. So new symptoms, go and see your doctor. But if you're otherwise well and you know what your cholesterol is and you do something about it, there's no value to the regular health check unless you've got a chronic disease. In fact, in some senses, it can actually be worse for you because the doctor thinks, God, they're here again. I've got to do something. I'll do some tests. No value in that. What there is value in is getting screened at some point knowing what your cholesterol and blood pressure is. And when you're eligible for cancer screening, get the cancer screening done. So in women, start your cervical cancer screening at 25, and then once every five years after that. Um, If you um, are uh, over 40 or 50, get starting your breast screening. And over 50, getting your bowel cancer screening. Now, what amazes me is that only about 40% of Australians who are eligible for bowel cancer screening send back the kit. Yeah. That means there are 60% of Australians who are so cowardly about actually putting poo on a piece of paper that they'd rather die of bowel cancer <laughs> or have a mutilating operation and have a bag, a bag on their abdomen and have toxic chemotherapy. They'd much rather have that yeah. than put yeah. poo on a piece of paper and send it off to the lab. You know, Explain that. If you're that person... Don't bother buying my book. My book's not going to solve your problems here. You've got bigger, you've got bigger problems than I can, I, can, I can help you with. Give me a break. Norman, you've stated that as a young boy you had a fear of dying. Is that something that you moved on from as you got older or is it something that's still with you? No, no, it's very much still with me. Um, I can get quite panicky thinking about it. Paradoxically, there's been at least two occasions in my life where I faced death imminently and... I've, I've responded in a fairly calm, cool way to it right. and got through it. Nonetheless, um, it, it's more the you're know, going quietly in the night thing that, that scares me. Right. You know, and my view is this is all we've got. I don't mm. believe in an afterlife. And um, so I want to make the most of it. And I just look at people say that those who are egoistical um, – are the ones who fear death the most because we can't imagine a world without us in it. Um, Norman, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, We have three quick questions to conclude our conversation if you're ready for these. Sure. The first one is, if you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, what's the one piece of advice you would give? Get your shit together with your appetite. (laughs) Probably cherish my relationships a bit more. What is the greatest thing about getting older? Look, it sounds corny to say it, but it is a bit of wisdom. As long as you learn from your mistakes, you do accumulate 
a, a bit of wisdom. And that comes back to that humility thing. You know, if and you, you've learned and remembered from your mistakes, and we all make mistakes, then you do accumulate some wisdom. And as long as you pass that on to others in a non-painful way, mm-hmm. hey, Sonny, I know what's best for you. You know, if you were my age, blah, blah, blah. It's not in that way, but mm-hmm. just mentoring people. I get great joy out of mentoring young people and seeing them succeed. Final question. One thing you wish for in your future? Oh, having people around me that I love and cherish. Dr. Norman Swan, it's been a wonderfully enlightening conversation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That was such an insightful conversation with Dr. Norman Swan. I concur with so much of what he shared in that conversation, especially in terms of focusing on our biological age rather than the chronological age, as well as the need to remain engaged right through our life, be that through our work or other pursuits. It's just so vital for all of us. For more information like this, please visit our website, booming.net.au, or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.